The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's turn now in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We last left off in the book of Mark with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we saw that that event was not only a fulfillment of prophecy, but it was also a perfect picture of the meekness and humility of Jesus. However, there could not possibly be a more disparate picture between what we saw then and what we are going to encounter in our text this morning. Jesus never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But today, we are going to see a different side of the character of Christ. We are going to see a different side than we've been accustomed to in the entire book of Mark. These words that we're about to read are challenging, to say the least. They are challenging both in terms of how we should understand them and in terms of how we should apply them. But I am confident that God will be our guide this morning. So please follow along as I start reading in verse 12. This is God's holy word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, <clears throat> have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what, he, that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is a challenging text. But let's pray that God would help us today to understand it and to apply it. Lord, I pray that today you would help me to proclaim the excellencies of your glory well. Please, Lord, let your words speak to our hearts. God, I pray for my frailty. I pray for my voice. Uh, please allow me to uh, be able to speak carefully and, and well through this. But Lord, especially with my cough, I pray that you would limit that and allow me to speak without losing my voice this morning. Lord, I pray for the people and our frailty. Lord, we cannot hear these things apart from the Holy Spirit's help and assistance. So, Father, I pray for our frailty. Give us ears to hear what you have to teach us this morning. Father, I pray for the, the challenging nature of what this text will tell us. I pray that you would help us to apply it, that this would not merely be a time of intellectual education, but it would rather be a time of growth. That you would, through this, prune us change us. Help us to imitate Jesus because of this. Lord, there is something deep and important he wants to teach us. Help this be a church that would not make Jesus want to flip over a table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you've been with us for a while, you'll remember that Mark likes to use a very specific 
pattern of teaching. He likes to tell stories in a very particular way that was common in his day. It's called an inclusio. But because Mark uses it all the time, and not many other people do in the Bible, scholars and historians of the church and those who are uh, writing commentaries like to use the term, they lovingly have called it, a Markin sandwich, to explain how we should understand and interpret this gospel account. The way that an inclusio works is kind of like this. First, you have a piece of bread on the bottom, right? Like you were making a sandwich. That's the first part of the story. And Mark will tell us part of the story. He will begin informing us of the story. And that's the bottom piece of bread. But then he'll totally change pace. It's like a totally different thing, a totally different story. And that's the meat that goes in the middle. And then he'll come back to that first story and place another piece of bread on top by finishing out what was happening in that first story. Steps one, two, and three. It's important to understand this style of writing because if you don't, then you have absolutely no way of understanding what our passage in front of us means. Whenever you have a Markin sandwich, these bread brackets that exist are necessary to define and to give parameters to the middle story. Likewise, the meat that is in the center of the story gives depth and it gives expression and, in, in, and imagery to the truth that is being expressed by these bread brackets. So the sandwich that we find in our text is going to operate as our outline for us this morning. First, we will consider the cursed tree. Then we will change pace and look at the compromised temple. Then we will go back to that cursed tree and consider the corrective teaching of Jesus. Let's start with the cursed tree. At first glance, Jesus' action in this part of the story seems very out of character. I mean, does it not? I mean, he is hungry, so he starts looking for food, and then when he doesn't find food where he was looking, he curses the tree. Does this not seem unusual to you? We have never seen Jesus do anything like this before. It's so shocking and unusual that many liberal scholars deny that this could possibly even be written by the same person who wrote the rest of the book of Mark. For example, Walter E. Bundy said that this action of Jesus is, quote, irrational and revolting. T.W. Manson added, he says, quote, This is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of an ill temper. These men, who were unfaithful scholars, and many like them, do not understand how to interpret scripture because they don't have the simple tool that you do, the Markin sandwich. So let's examine this cursed tree a little closer so you can see what I mean. In verse 12, it tells us that Jesus and his disciples were walking from Bethany to Jerusalem. In order to do that, you leave one hill, which is where Bethany is, you go down into a valley, and then you come back up into Jerusalem. It's likely that just outside of Bethany, where that hill is, that's where they find this tree. So let's examine this cursed tree a little bit closer, and let's see what it says here about it. This walk of two miles that they're making from Bethany to Jerusalem would have had a lot of trees on it. But there are a lot of travelers also. And travelers like to eat the fruit of the trees that are beside the road. And it's interesting because this is a common breakfast for people who were pilgrims to Jerusalem. They would often make this their meal. They would plan, we're not going to go to uh, breakfast you know, at the diner instead. We're going to make our way to the fig trees along the side of the road and we'll just eat as we go. Please look at your Bibles for a moment at verse 13. And that's where we find the description of this particular tree. It says, and seeing in the distance a fig, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. This again is challenging to understand, but I should also note that the rendering of this text in English is not doing us any favors. It says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for, that's a very important important word in our English language, for, or because it was not the season for figs. But that phrase, for it was not the season for figs, makes it look like Jesus has no rightful reason to say these things. It would seem, because it is not the time for figs to grow, that this tree is completely exonerated from doing anything wrong. It makes it appear that Jesus is just throwing some temper tantrum like an impetuous child, and he's arbitrarily and ruthlessly condemning an innocent tree. If you're anything like me, you don't know much about figs, and you probably know less about fig trees. 
Earlier this year, I had the honor and privilege of spending a couple days with our friends and missionaries, uh, Jesse and Jeremy Shrek, in northern Italy. And one day, Jesse and I were walking down his street to a bakery, and on one side of the road was a large open field. And in the center of that field was a massive, leafy tree. And it was March, which is just about the same time that Jesus would have been walking by this massive, leafy tree. And I didn't take any notice of the tree. It's just a tree. I don't care about trees. But Jesse was staring intently at this tree. He was focusing on it. He was stopping and looking at it. He had never noticed that it was there. They had recently moved to this location. He didn't know, and I definitely didn't know, that is a fig tree. And so he pointed out to me that if you look carefully, you'll see all of the buds coming out on the fig tree. In English, we call those buds knops. But in Hebrew, they are called pajim, and they were, in this day, and even to this day now, eaten by the people who traveled. So it's not the season for figs. It is not the season for ripe figs. In other words, it's not the season to harvest figs, but it is the season for the knops. And the knops are actually a very good breakfast meal for people to consume. And that's why James Edwards paraphrases this, this passage by saying, it was, of course, not the season for figs, but it was the season for the pajim. The leafy tree that Jesus saw gave an indication, right? If you see this big fruit tree with lots of leaves, you would expect there should be fruit there. And the indication was that it was healthy. It looked like it should be immensely fruitful. However, upon closer inspection, there was no fruit to be found. There was no pajim. There was nothing worthwhile for Jesus. In a fig tree, this kind of fruitlessness is an indication that there is actually rot inside of the tree. It's actually an indication that it's in the process of dying. There are many diseases that fig trees get where once they stop producing these knops, it means you need to cut them down or otherwise that disease will spread to your other fig trees. But this still doesn't explain to us, why does Jesus curse the tree? I mean, really... He's Jesus. Why doesn't he just command the tree to produce fruit? Why doesn't he walk up to it and say, where there are no figs, I'm hungry, make figs. Could he not do that? He can multiply food. We've seen him feed the 5,000. He doesn't need this tree for sustenance. When he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted, remember, to turn a stone into bread. He doesn't need the tree. He can turn a rock into food if he wanted to. But at that point, he replied, man does not live by bread alone. Implied in that temptation is the fact that Jesus could use anything for food that he wanted. He could make literally anything in this creation that he wants. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well near Sychar. And the disciples were not present for the conversation because they had left and they'd gone into Sychar to buy food. But when they returned, we read these words in John 4, 31 through 34. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have, no, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What? So the disciples are looking at each other like, why did we just go buy food? I mean, is Jesus like, Storing stuff in his pockets here. So the disciples said to one another, verse 33, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Does Jesus need this tree? Absolutely not. We have seen many occasions where Jesus, he, he, instead of eating, he actually steps aside and does ministry instead. So why does Jesus curse this tree? He doesn't need these figs. It was not an act of anger. Rather, this is a picture, a visual parable, an object lesson. Specifically, the Old Testament prophets had regularly used fig trees to represent coming judgment. For example, as Jonathan read for us earlier, Jeremiah penned something that was quite scathing as a denunciation about the nation of Judah in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. He says, there will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. He's speaking about Judah as a fig tree. There will be no more leaves on the tree. There will be no more figs on the tree and then their figs are going to wither. Also consider this parable that Jesus told roughly one year earlier. We read these words in Luke thirteen six through 9. It says, and Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. 
and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Sounds familiar. And he said to the vine dresser, look for, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this tree, and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should I use up, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, a year later, a year has passed from that time to this. Jesus is walking by an actual fig tree. And instead of giving a verbal parable, he gives a visual parable. So what is it that the tree represents? What is it that we're supposed to see in this tree? Why is he cursing it? What does Jesus, why does Jesus say, may no one ever eat fruit from you again? To understand that, we need to shift into the second point, into the meat of our sandwich, the corrupted temple. So, in verse 15, it tells us they came into Jerusalem. And in almost a passive, and maybe even an unassuming way, it calmly states, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What is going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? To clarify this issue, I think we need to become a little bit more familiar with the temple itself. The temple, specifically known as the third temple or the temple of Herod, was beautifully crafted. And it was made out of marble and it was made out of wood. It was by far the largest religious site of worship during this point in history. There's nothing that even compared to it. I mean, if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. The, the Hebrew people worshipped one god. And so the temple of that one god was massive and ornate. The people of all the other nations, they worshipped many gods. So they were small and spread out. But this temple, the temple, had four main regions or sections to it that could only be entered by certain groups of people. The most exclusive is the Holy of Holies. It can only be entered one time a year by one man who holds the title of the high priest. And he is only allowed to enter one time a year on the Holy of Holies, into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And that one man was only allowed, the only one allowed to enter until he died. Okay, then we have a next court. The, no, I mean, almost none of us would ever be in that court, right? Nobody here could possibly make it in. Well, then we have the next court, which is a court of Israel, which, is accepts, which was accessible to every Hebrew circumcised male, unless they had been cast out for, for some form of sin, or if they were not purified in some way. And then after that, you had the court of the women, which was open to all Jewish women. And then after that, you had the largest area, the massive area. It was roughly 35 square acres of area, the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was specifically for all people, regardless of national background or ethnicity, all people to come worship God faithfully. That's where they were supposed to go pray. And if you were here two weeks ago, you remember that Jesus entered into the temple, Mark chapter 11, 11. He looks around, he examines, he takes stock of what's there, and then he just leaves. Now, this is the next day, the following day, he returned and he makes a calculated demonstration. Jesus is going to call this place a den of robbers. The question is, who are the robbers and who are they robbing? Well, allow me to answer that question in three ways. First of all, Jesus is clear that this space is being misused because all the nations were supposed to be here and it was supposed to be a place where they could come and they could pray. Jesus is making a clear reference to Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 in which God shows his great desire for all of the nations, all of the people to come to his temple and to worship him. And the people of Israel had turned the court of the Gentiles into a market, into a place for common sales to take place. This was only a few days before Passover. And the city of Jerusalem was about 200 to 250,000 people in population. To us, that sounds very small. For an ancient city, that was massive. But during the time of the Passover, its population would swell to about 2.5 to 2.7 million people, which for an ancient city is unfathomable. 
unthinkable. It is massive. And Rome, which was the largest city in the ancient world at that time, was only about 2 million people. And Jerusalem would be filled with even more than were in the city of Rome. And on that time of the Passover, there were many sales that took place of specific kinds of livestock because those animals were sacrificed in the temple. We know from historians that between 250 and 270,000 lambs, just lambs, were killed in the temple by sacrifice every year. Where did they come from? Well, we know also from history and from the scripture, they were raised nearby in Bethlehem. They were brought in and they were sold in the marketplace, in the court of the Gentiles. Not where they should have been outside of the city. Now, because all of these people are gathered together in this one spot, searching for money, you can't pray there. You can't worship there. What? I don't know if you've ever been to a crazy market space where people are bumping into each other and pushing around and haggling back and forth. You can't even hear yourself think. How is anyone supposed to come there and pray? And the temple was also a place that required people to pay what was known as the temple tax. It was instituted before the temple even existed in the books of Moses. But this temple tax is a place where is a thing where you would come and you would, if you were an adult male over the age of 20, you would just give a half shekel. We see Jesus pay this tax earlier on in the uh, scriptures. But this is a very important, it's really hard to explain this in our culture because we don't think of money the same way that they do back then. Um, but this tax was one where they would have to exchange monies. You couldn't just use the normal coins that you might want to. And therefore, there are many money changers that filled up this place. And if there's anybody who's going to be loud about an exchange, it's people who are debating on how much you owe me when you're exchanging money. So that's why Kent Hughes describes the scene as a country fair and the stock exchange all rolled into one. This place was chaos. And if you take another look at verse 16, it says, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I never understood that until this week. Why will Jesus not let someone carry something through the temple? What's the big deal? Well, if you've ever spent much time in Manhattan, this will be a helpful illustration. You know that Central Park divides a large chunk of the city in two. You've got the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, right? And if you're on the East Side and you want to get to the West Side and you, you don't, for some reason, want to go underground on the subway, it's hard to do that. It's challenging. But fortunately, they've created a few streets, like 72nd Street, where you can just drive right through the middle. Or you can walk on the walkway directly through without going through the Bramble, which if you've ever tried, don't try. It's the worst. Don't go to the Bramble. You'll get lost, like I have. But what Jesus is doing here is he's stopping people from creating a shortcut. The temple courts had become a, an easy way for them to get from one side of the city to the other. If you look at a map of Jerusalem in this day, the temple is a massive part of the city. And it breaks one side from the other. And so the easiest way for people to get from one side to the other was to walk directly through this shortcut. So, and we know this also, not just from, from this text, we know this from history in some of the Jewish writings called the Mishnah. They started making rules about how you shouldn't walk through it. But guess what? Everyone was breaking them. So Jesus here in these courts is looking around saying, the inner courts are reserved for prayer. The court of the Israelites, the court of women, the Holy of Holies, those are all revered and reserved for worship. But out here, you're using this as a back alleyway to get where you want to go. The Jews of this time period, including the disciples, also, you have to understand, had an expectation that when the Messiah would show up, when he would arrive, the first thing he would do is he would expel everyone who was not Jewish. He would get rid of all these Gentiles who were crowding into our lands. They expected the Christ to banish the Gentiles and to make the Jews prosperous and powerful once again. But what Jesus shows us is the exact opposite here. Jesus shows his great love and compassion for the nations, and he acts as our advocate. Or I like the, the way James Edwards writes it. He says, Jesus does not clear the temple of the Gentiles, but for the Gentiles. The system that was in place was robbing the nations of their opportunity to worship God properly. It was robbing the people of their court where they were called to worship. This court was officially entitled the ethne, which means... The nations. This is their space to pray. And they were displaying their own self-centered ethnic superiority by saying, let's just turn it into a market. Let's just turn it into a place to buy and sell. 
So that brings us to the second robbery that was taking place, that Jesus is confronting the extortion that is taking place in the market. Now, every adult male who entered the temple, like I said, is required to pay a tax. And this tax is not expensive. It's just a shekel. In fact, a half shekel for an adult male. And it was not a very big deal for you to pay it, except for the fact that you had to have a specific kind of coin. And that coin was not common. It was relatively rare. In some ways, money today is very different than it was back in those days. In some ways, it's still the same. But now, I can go to a place, I can take out my phone from my pocket, I can tap it on something, and I have paid for it. In those days, it was very different. You had to use the specific kind of currency in some situations. Coins are ridiculously obnoxious to use. I don't know if you, if you have to pay parking meters or whatever you might need coins for. They're annoying to carry around. They're heavy. They're frustrating. And you have to make sure you have the right denominations. Well, in those days, coins were only minted every several years. And they were minted by the people in power, usually by a wealthy leader who wanted to show off their greatness. And so what would happen in every major culture in the ancient world is they would not only make them in the likeness of their ruler, they would try to bless themselves, the rulers would try to bless themselves by putting on one side of the coin a false god. And that false god was a form of worship to them. The Bible teaches us, right, one of the commandments, second commandment, or the third commandment, you shall not have any graven images, Right? You shall not have any carved images. Is that not a graven image? So they would say, you cannot bring any of these coins in. They're all worthless and they are offensive to God. You cannot bring in a coin that has the face of a false god on it. I love coins. I think they're fascinating. They're a brilliant way to study history. They're an, incredible, an incredibly interesting thing to think about. Think of all the hands that this passed through as it got to me. Well, in those days, there was a coin that was becoming rare. And this particular coin, it was a little bigger than a quarter. It was a coin that had been minted about 60 years earlier in the, in the country of Tyre nearby. And on it, there was a picture of a, of a man. And that man was worshipped as a god, but he was also a historical figure. And on the other side was an eagle. So they said, well, since it's an actual person, we can actually use this coin. So this is the only coin that's allowed to be used in the temple. Well, that meant that there was an opportunity to make a lot of money. People would come in using the coins of their own countries. People would come in from Rome or from other parts of the far-reaching aspects of the empire. They would come from Egypt and they would come to worship faithful Jews coming back to Jerusalem to worship God on the Passover. They would come in and say, wait, my coins are not accepted here. I got to go make some change. They would go to the money changing tables and the money changers had moved in right next to the places where you would need to pay. And the money changers we know from history were charging massive amounts of cost for this. It was about 8 to 10% of whatever you gave them, they would keep it. And then they would give you the remaining 90 to 92%. If you've ever changed money, if you've gone to another country and done an exchange, that's a terrible exchange rate. That's awful. And it's a form of extortion that they were using intentionally by trying to say, I want to profit off of the worship of God. Most people in those days would have been very frustrated and irritated by this. The people who are genuinely coming to worship God are being robbed by these people who come in and want to profiteer off of God's temple. People have made their livelihood from scamming these pilgrims who actually want to praise God. Money changers were literally filling their pocketbooks. Many of them, this was their one opportunity for making money the entire year. The rest of the year is vacation. They would earn And if you look back through history, we know many of the people who are actually making the most money from this were people related to those in the Sanhedrin or sometimes the Sanhedrin themselves. It's the religious ruling body who are financially gaining from all of this money changing from the rules that they themselves have created. So I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever like tried to stack coins this year, we had uh, over $400 in coins come in for a vacation Bible school that we sent on to Rachel Wessel. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've tried to stack up the coins and then kind of like bump to the table, you know what happens? Disaster happens. Everything collapses into a miserable pile of needing to be recounted coins. Well, imagine what would happen in the temple when Jesus comes over and he flips. We don't know how hard this flip is. It doesn't matter. You topple a table and those coins are going to scatter 
And of course, everybody is going to want them. Can you imagine the craziness of the coins scattering across that place, filled with thousands of people, as he walks by table after table, flipping them over, saying, this is not what you are to be doing in this place. Can you imagine the chaos of Jesus taking the stools, as it says, of those who were selling pigeons and tossing them across the courtyard? What is this guy doing? Most of the people would have no idea who Jesus is. They would just see something crazy taking place in the place where they are usually gathering to worship. This would have been shocking and surprising and absolutely confusing to the people that were there. And Jesus is telling people, stop, don't you dare walk through here. Go around. You get around the other side of the city a different way. Jesus is taking charge of this temple. Remember the fig tree? Jesus doesn't tell the fig tree to improve. He does not give it some steps to correction. Jesus simply tells the fruit tree, the fig tree, no one's ever going to eat fruit from you again. The Jewish religion had become like this fig tree. The Jewish structure of beliefs had become just like it. It was outwardly beautiful. From a distance, you could see these people and say, wow, they are good worshipers. Wow, these people must really love God. Look at all this, the effort they go to to praise and worship their God. But on the inside, they're rotten, just like that tree. They're not producing any fruit. It's just leaves. It's just show. And all the frills and the pomp and the circumstance meant nothing to God. For many people in the temple that day, they had no faith. Instead, they were following a system of dead religion. Like the fig tree that was outwardly beautiful, they were completely dead on the inside. And that is part of the reason that Jesus declares judgment upon it. And you can see just how deep that rejection of God goes in the heart of these people. In verse 18, we read, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So instead of encouraging the people and saying, Listen to Jesus, they started plotting to kill him. And instead of listening to him and changing their own patterns of false worship, they feared him because they knew that they had potentially lost their place of authority. And instead of bending the knee to Jesus, they raised their fist in hateful opposition. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Jesus finds the fig tree not doing its appointed job. The tree became a perfect metaphor for Israel. And beyond that, for, the claiming to be, uh, for those claiming to be God's people, but who do not bear fruit. In other words, Tim Keller is saying this goes beyond just those people. This is a true statement about anyone who claims to worship God, but they're not bearing fruit. Please understand, Jesus is not just removing the temple. He is replacing it. Please understand, this is the third and most important form of robbery. These people were not just robbing the nations of their place to worship. They were not just robbing people through extortion. Most importantly, they were robbing God of the worship that he deserves. And instead they were filling it up with false worship. Over the next several weeks, we are going to see how Jesus will progressively more and more open up about the fact that he himself is the replacement for this temple. No longer will there be a need for blood sacrifices because he will be the final spotless lamb who is slain. The cross proves that. No longer will there be any need for any earthly holy of holies because God has made his dwelling place with man. The tearing of the veil from the top to the bottom proves that. And there will no longer be a division between the Jew and the Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All are free to worship God equally. For as it says in Galatians 3, 8, verse 8, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the church proves that, or it should. We are worshiping the Lord right here, right now. We're not in the temple. The temple's gone. It was destroyed. Yet, we are worshiping God. This is not a sanctuary. This is not some holy of holies. This is not some inner court or outer court. We can worship God in this building, or in our houses, or in our cars, or anywhere we go. Because why? The temple has dwelt with us. Because Jesus himself has become the temple. And we are unified in that because of Jesus. But I want to always keep an eye on ourselves. 
We must never become smug like these religious rulers. We most certainly have to keep a constant eye on ourselves, a check to be sure that we are not worshiping with our lips with a heart that is far from God. I mean, I say this, I prayed this earlier. Church that I love, please hear me. I do not want this to be a place where Jesus would walk in and want to flip a table. We want to be a church of genuine worship. But let me press it to be more personal for you. Is your heart a place where Jesus would want to come flip a table? Is your heart filled with genuine worship? Or are you just following a routine? Is your Christianity just a tradition? Is it just simply a feel-good mechanism or a pick-me-up or a way to feel like you've done something to make yourself worthy before God? Is it a way to feed your own self-righteousness? Do you truly commune with God when you read your Bible? Or is it just another thing that you need to do to check off your list? Are you seeking to fill your mind with knowledge that puffs up? Or are you seeking to get to know the one who gave you that word of God? The Pharisees knew the Bible really well. They did not know God. Do you do your good deeds to be seen by men? Or you do them so that God might be glorified? Do you know what happens after this dramatic event in the temple takes place? Five days later, five days, Jesus died. And he died to kill dead religion. That's not the only reason that he died, but that's an aspect of it. He bore our sin and severed the relationship that he had with the Father to give a genuine relationship with the Father to us. He rose again and he lives to be our constant mediator and our constant friend. So if you find yourself in a pattern of dry, stale religion and your heart is drifting ever farther away from the love of God, I call you by the grace of God to repent and to love the Lord. Not just do all this stuff, but to genuinely love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you do that, the actions will follow. But the love must be central that you have for him. Maybe in a room this size, there are those who have never bowed their hearts to Jesus at all. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to see Jesus in a way that you've never seen him before. Perhaps you don't like this picture of Jesus. Perhaps you, you look at these words and you, you say to yourself, I don't like this Jesus who is flipping over a table. That kind of king does not interest me at all. Please understand, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. I like the way Tim Keller says it. He says, he is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword. And you must accept him or reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Jesus is not only our Lord and Savior, but for those who never repent, he lives to be your judge. We see here a small, minor aspect, a tiny picture of that kind of judgment. But you have to understand the good news of salvation. That though you and I are, and everyone here and everyone in the world is worthy of judgment and worthy of punishment, he came for the purpose of removing that judgment from us by taking it on himself. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I would ask that before you go, please talk to me or to anybody that you've seen up here on the stage or in the worship team. We want you to know Jesus because he saves and because that's the only way for that judgment to be removed. So now we come to the top piece of bread in our Mark and Sandwich, which is the corrective teaching. Look again to verse 20. As they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. I would love to know, like, what's going on in the disciples' head? Were they, like, expecting this to happen? Or, you know, he, clearly there's a little bit of surprise in his voice. Are they not used to Jesus saying something and it actually taking place? See, this curse that Jesus had placed had actually come to fruition. And it happened in an unusual way overnight. In one day, it went from having crazy amounts of leaves to being absolutely withered all the way down to its roots. In fact, the phrase withered away to its roots is probably better translated from the Greek to from the roots up, it has withered. But either way, the entire tree is now dead. 
The entire tree is now worthless. It cannot even project an image of fruitfulness. Just to give a quick history lesson here, the temple where Jesus stood is not there. It's no longer there. You can go to Israel. You can go walk around. There's only one little tiny space that you'll see, which they call the Wailing Wall. That's it. That's all that's left. Everything is gone. It was destroyed by the emperor Titus in the year AD 70. To this day, no sacrifices can ever be made by the Jewish people as they are supposed to be made because there's no temple. All the religious activity that was taking place in that temple ceased. And even though they desire to do that, through their dead form of religion, even though the Jewish people have a, 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 an inclination that they should do that, they can't. The tree is withered to its roots. There is nothing left. It is gone. It has been absolutely demolished. Jesus has declared the end of that system. And so it came to an end. But what we see happening in the remainder of this text is very interesting. Jesus is now going to shift from speaking about the temple and about this system of religion. He's going to turn away from that and he's going to look right at his disciples and say, but here's what you need to do. And since this is the application that Jesus gives, this is the application that I will give to you. And there are three of them specifically that he focuses upon here. Though these men that he's talking to are knuckleheads, they were followers of God. You see them put their foot in their mouth all the time, yet they are desirous, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, to serve and love God and live for him. So Jesus tells them how to truly worship and live for God. He is going to replace what you just saw in the temple with these things. Jesus is going to tell them these three ways. First, and most importantly, Jesus commands them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. By faith, Jesus here is telling them to have trust and full reliance upon God. In this context, it should be understood as a contrast against the things the religious rulers were doing and what they were trusting in. He's saying, all that stuff down there, that's not genuine faith in God. Have faith in God. Those people down there, they believed they were right with God. And they believed they were right with God because they followed the law. But Romans 3.20 tells us, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Are they right with God? Absolutely not. And they believed that God was satisfied and their sins were atoned for by the blood of animals. But in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 it tells us, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Did it ever work? Did these sacrifices ever atone? No, they did not. Their system of religion was a picture pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. All that stuff is coming to an end. There will never again be a sacrifice that is pleasing to God on that altar. And they thought, those spiritual leaders and the people following them in Jerusalem, they thought their spirituality was rooted in their national identity. They thought that since they could trace their family tree back to Abraham, they were automatically to be considered part of God's family. They believed that the fruit of their spirituality was derived from a place of national patriotism and nostalgic, legalistic moralism. But in John chapter 15, Jesus corrects this kind of thinking. He fixes it by saying, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Let's look at that fig tree. That fig tree has no hope of ever growing figs. It can't. You as a branch cannot bear good works, good fruit, the fruit of the spirit, apart from abiding in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me, Jesus says. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If you're not abiding in Christ, you're not going to be able to, to bear fruit. doesn't matter how hard you try. It will just be works of your hand, labors of your hand. It will be nothing of value to God. It will just be leaves. He says again, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I remember growing up reading this and thinking, well, that just means that I couldn't eat or breathe the air because if Jesus didn't exist, then there wouldn't be any air. But this is talking about spiritual growth. You cannot grow to be honoring to God and pleasing in his sight unless you are abiding in Christ. Apart from him, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned, Jesus says. 
So here we come to the most abused portion of our text this morning. Jesus told them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. This is where knowing history and the setting of what's going on here is very helpful. The place where Jesus was standing when he said this would have been on the road to Bethany. And as they looked out on the horizon, there would have been one large mountain that was visible to them in the distance. And on top of that mountain was a massive building called the Fortress of Herodian. It was built by Herod the Great. Now, at this time when Jesus is there, there is a current ruler named Herod. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is most famous in the Bible for being the wicked man who tried to kill Jesus as a child by having every male boy under the age of two slaughtered. That man was clearly despicable. But we also know this man was a genius in terms of building projects. In fact, a lot of what Jesus was walking around in the temple had been redone, reworked by Herod the Great. And there are many ancient structures that were phenomenally built and beautiful that were made by Herod the Great. He improved on many of the greatest aspects of the Roman architecture for his people, and one of them was this particular fortress called the Fortress of Herodian. But what made it so beautiful was not only the fact that it was a great building on top of a mountain, it's that he made his people, he paid them to remove the other mountain next to it, so it would be the only mountain in view. And so that is the only building that you would see. And so they literally, piece by piece, chipped away at a mountain, put it in bags, and carried it down to the shore, and removed a mountain. And Herod was known as a man who had enough power to move a mountain. And now they're looking at Herod, the grandson, and saying, this guy's pathetic. He does not compare to his grandfather at all. And now Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, listen, if you pray, your prayers are more powerful than the work that took years By that great leader of the history of this nation. That man who had so much brilliance in terms of building. If you just pray, you can accomplish more than he did in all the years that he was the king in this place. He is not saying you can physically, you are going to physically take up an Everest and throw it in the sea. As many people will tell you. So Christian, trust me. When I say, if your situation is challenging, God knows that. He put you there for a reason. At the men's breakfast yesterday, we studied James chapter 1. And we talked about trials. Life is hard. Life is challenging. And it is intentionally so, designed that way, by God. And God wants you to experience challenging trials because they produce steadfastness in you. So have faith and trust in God. So have faith and stand firm in your prayers. I think part of the reason Jesus is saying that brings us to our next command and application for you. Pray. Pray. I will say it one more time. I want it to sink in. Pray. It's easy for us to talk about prayer. It was easy for them to talk about prayer. But our lives are what tells us whether or not we really believe prayer is valid and valuable. Look at what they had done. There is a 35-acre place for people to gather together and to pray. And what have they done? They turned it into a marketplace. They turned it into a shortcut to get from one place to another. They totally, by their actions, denied the power of prayer. And I think why Jesus is telling them to pray is because he's looking down at that temple and saying, look at the prayerlessness that is there. Church, is this a place of prayer or a place of prayerlessness. I encourage you, if you're able, come tonight. We're going to be here at 6 o'clock for a prayer meeting. Prayer is very important in the life of the Christian. But let me ask you on an individual level. Is your response to your trials to pray? Or is it to complain? Is it to get angry? Is it to have self-pity? Is it to become bitter? Is it to try to find something to entertain you or distract you? 
What is your response if it is not prayer? Beware those who will teach to you that this verse means that God is required to give you whatever you want. It's not saying that. It is not saying that you deserve it as long as you pray the words. Consider the words of J.C. Ryle on this topic. He said, We have no right to expect that whatever we take into our heads to ask God will at once be done for us, whether it is for his glory and our sanctification or not. We have no warrant for presuming that in every difficulty and trouble, God will at once work a miracle and deliver us from our anxiety as soon as we make it a subject of prayer. There is an entire movement of theology known as the prosperity gospel, which says, name it, claim it, believe it, receive it, blab it, grab it. But Jesus is not writing a blank check for us here in this book. He is not telling us, just say whatever you want and God is going to have to give it to you. That is not what Jesus is getting at here. Rather, I believe he is highlighting the prayerlessness, once again, of the people in the temple. The prayer had disappeared from that place. And he is telling them, your lives need to be marked with prayer. It just, let me just rephrase that. It hadn't disappeared. As Jesus says, it had been robbed from that place. Jesus is seeking to correct the thinking of the disciples and helping them understand by explaining to them that God does not listen to them in terms of prayer unless they have a specific heart. Which brings us to our third application this morning. And that is to forgive. This might seem like a strange place for Jesus to land the plane in this story. We start with Jesus cursing a tree and now he's saying forgive. What's going on here? Why does he say this? He says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Notice, the reason that Jesus wants them to forgive here is still grounded in prayer. We often see in the Gospels that Jesus teaches us that one of the underlying characteristics of a true disciple of Jesus is that forgiven people forgive. Or allow me to once again quote J.C. Ryle. He explains it this way. He says, We have no right to look for mercy if we are not ready to extend mercy to our brothers and sisters. We cannot really feel the sinfulness of the sins that we ask to have pardoned if we cherish malice towards other people. Jesus does not want the disciples to pray like the Pharisees, who spoke with vain repetitions to be seen by men. Rather, he wanted them to approach God for mercy. And how is it that we should receive mercy? We should note that we have received mercy and therefore show mercy to others. I will close with this one final exhortation. If you know Jesus Christ, then you have been forgiven a great debt. If you know Jesus, you've been forgiven a debt greater than you can comprehend. And Jesus took that debt and he paid for it. Is there something that you are holding or harboring or having a grudge against someone else that you are bitterly holding on to? You will not let go for anything because that person has wronged you. That, that is nothing in comparison to what you have done to Jesus Christ. That is nothing in comparison to the way that you have spurned God, the creator of the universe. Yet, if you are in Christ, God has forgiven you. Go. And forgive. If you have been forgiven, forgive. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you've given us this text, this challenging text. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it and to apply it, to live it out. God, I pray that we would be a faithful people, people who trust in you and rely on you for our strength, rely on you for our holiness and our righteousness, rely on you for all of our standing before God. And I pray, God, that you would also help us to be prayerful people recognizing that we can do nothing apart from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a forgiving people, recognizing that we have been forgiven much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.